gentlemen, my name is Martin Lockwell. I am head of the law department. Uh, I'm hosting this evening's public lecture. I normally would not say anything in advance of the lecture because the lecture will be very beautifully chaired by Michael Bridge, our panel professor of law. However, this is an unusual public lecture because it's not simply a public lecture by a distinguished practitioner of international commercial arbitration. Jan Paulson is joining us uh, this session as a centennial professor Him. So in this sense, it's not simply a public lecture, it's the inaugural lecture of Centennial Professor here at the RC. And so before passing you over to, to Michael's capable hands, I should say thank you very much for coming here this evening. Thank you so much, Jan. Over to you, Michael. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome uh, Jan Paulson and introduce him in his role as uh, Centennial Professor, delivering, delivering a lecture that is um, entitled, and you may have seen a slightly different title circulating earlier, The Role of Arbitration in the Emergence of Transnational Law, Arbitration's Fluid Universe. Now, I think I need hardly say that Jan Paulsen is about as distinguished an arbitrator as one would ever hope to see. He is the co-director of the International Arbitration and Public International Law Groups at um, Freshfields. He is um, the president of the London Court of International Arbitration and plays a leading role in the uh, administrative tribunals of the World Bank and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. He plays a leading role in the American uh, Arbitration Association <coughs> and he's a member of the Permanent Court of Arbitration at The Hague. And in between practice and playing that role in those arbitral associations and appearing in very many cases as a counsel and also as an arbitrator, he finds time to write. So he's written one of the leading books on uh, ICC arbitration, co-author. He has written um, a monograph on denial of justice in international law and he is about to produce, and anybody who is an author will realise perhaps, um, the imminence of uh, that expression about to produce a Clarendon series text for Oxford University Press called The Idea of Arbitration, which we all eagerly await. Now, I don't propose to take any more time. I simply wish to introduce him to you, and he will now take us through his chosen subject. Jan. Thank you very much. Thank you all for that welcome. Uh, it is indeed uh, a pleasure for me to join the faculty of this distinguished institution uh, and particularly uh, pleasant for me to join my colleagues Antea Roberts and Jan Kleinhasterkamp uh, who I think um, and hope uh, will uh, work with me, I will work with them to foster an environment at the LSE which is conducive to stimulating and advanced scholarship in our field. Lectures on legal theory tend to have two things in common. First, the speaker is convinced of the transcendent importance of his subject, holding forth with ardent intensity uh, to the point of losing track of time. The second thing is that the audience is perhaps less likely to perceive that they are being treated to something 
uh, in the nature of earth-shaking revelations, because after all, those things only happen once in a blue moon. So they tend to be restless, um, likely to daydream and perhaps long for release. Nevertheless, I shall try my luck. In addressing you on some theoretical matters relating to arbitration, I hope that it is not too much to ask of an English audience that they for once sample this fare, which is not familiar in this country. Indeed, I can broaden my observation to encompass the entire English-speaking world, I believe, uh, which may well have the advantage of splendid writings that make sense of statutes and cases and rules dealing with arbitration. But I can think of no work, no work at all, dealing with its theory. You can get incidental reflections in other works, but nothing head-on. In the French language, one might name a dozen theoretical works off the top of one's head. None in English. Yet surely we know that when the world moves, it is moved by ideas, not by know-how. Ideas guide our lives. Know-how helps us merely get through the day. My question is this. What is the legal ordering that gives effect to the social institution we call arbitration? What is it that makes arbitration lawful and awards binding? Since this is a lecture and not a debate, I can choose my enemies in order to do battle in comfort. On the one extreme, we have what I will call the dogmatic territorialism of Francis Mann. On the other, what I will call Parisian poetry. You will understand that I wish to guide you into the safety and soundness of middle ground. Here is what you should conclude, I'll tell you right now. Arbitration derives its legitimacy and its effectiveness from an unknown number of potentially relevant legal orders. The second and final part of my remarks will be to explore this pluralistic world in which modern arbitration thrives. I will not ask you to approve this world, merely to acknowledge that it exists, that it is in the ascendant, and that the varied combinations of legal orders in which it operates are not limited to those established by states with the result that we are best off recognizing that the pluralistic reality has expanded so far that we need a new fourth paradigm. The great paradox of arbitration is that it seeks the cooperation of the very public authorities from which it wants to free itself. The law of arbitration, as traditionally conceived, is the manifestation of this very tension. What will the state tolerate? To what will it lend its authority and power? Are arbitrations by necessity legally connected to a particular jurisdiction? If so, is it correct to say that, the, that only the law of that single jurisdiction may give effect to awards? Can arbitration function without the support of a particular state? As the once exclusive orderings of states disintegrate, these inquiries become not only more interesting, but indispensable. Allow me to introduce a fictional Maître Dupont of Geneva, appointed by a Swiss Chamber of Commerce to decide a dispute between two Swiss parties who do not even own passports. 
What would Maître Dupont conclude if she sought to identify the legal authority, the legal foundation for her authority? She might start with this reasonable working hypothesis. She expects that she will receive evidence and written submissions, will hear from parties, witnesses, and lawyers, will evaluate contentions put to her with respect to alleged breaches of contract, and finally, will prepare and render an award which upholds or rejects claims. She assumes that the parties, like it or not, will comply with her decision. Such is the usual narrative of an arbitration. This sequence of events, she might well reflect, seems to be a very legal process, yet has very little to do with the authority of the Swiss Confederation. She is not a public official and was not even appointed by a public official. At no point from beginning to end were any public officials involved or even informed. Every theoretical question leads to another. Is any legal foundation for her authority required beyond that of the party's agreement? What is the source of the right and duty to arbitrate? Of the authority of the arbitrator? Or of the effectiveness of awards? Must that source be a specific national legal order? The prospect of taking the full step to first principles, the definition of a legal order, is not certain to make any audience rejoice. After all, this is a domain to which swarms of exceptionally erudite and disputatious scholars have devoted pages as countless as the stars, destined to be read, it seems, chiefly by others intending to add to the production. Perhaps it is possible to keep things simple. First, what do the territorialists tell us? Our planet is divided into plots, each attributed to a jealous state. What happens within that plot can have no legal significance if it is not given that effect by those who exercise power in the name of the state holding dominion there. To give legal effect to, to events which occur inside the plot by reference to external norms is aberrant as a matter of political philosophy and nonsense as a matter of law. Such is the ter territorial thesis. It is outdated, but its influence lingers. It has become part of Francis Mann's legacy to be identified as the inflexible proponent of the territorialist thesis. This reputation is built on two oft-quoted passages from an essay he published in 1967 Entitled, entitled Lex Facet Arbitrum. These passages contain a phrase which takes no prisoners. Every arbitration is a national arbitration, that is to say, subject to a specific system of national law. On a subject of this importance, it seems extraordinary to treat this soundbite as a locus classicus. The focus of man's article was the law to be applied by arbitrators not the legal foundation of arbitration. His article attacked those who argued for the freedom of arbitrators to base their decision on perceptions of equity or of supranational norms. Mann insisted that the only kind of law that could govern transactions involving non-states was the law of a given national state. He may well have been seeking to protect arbitrators from taking what he perceived to be excessive license, leading to perceptions that arbitration is a tool 
for law avoidance in conflict with the public interest. Be that as it may, it's not our subject tonight. The article makes no distinction between identifying the law followed in making an award, on the one hand, and, on the other, the law that gives effect to the undertaking to arbitrate. This confusion means that the phrase I just quoted is merely an incidental assertion having uncertain connections with the core of man's article. One can understand the territorialist model as a product of attitudes prevalent until the middle of the 20th century. But it does not fit the realities of an international society no longer constrained within national units. A world in which, moreover, national legal systems understand this new flux. Looking again at Switzerland, the law there allows foreign parties to stipulate that there may be no recourse against awards. The fact that few avail themselves of this office, of this option of waiver, does not make it less valid as an example. So, in the case of such no waiver, even if the losing party contends that the arbitral tribunal violated its right to be heard, it could not seek to have the award set aside by the Swiss courts. This serious alleged violation would naturally be subject to the control of courts asked to enforce the award. But then we instantly see that man's famous phrase is wrong. If the courts of another country examines the award and finds it eligible for enforcement, it cannot possibly be said that, there, that this is so because the award finds its foundation in Swiss law. This point is driven home when one considers that a third country would be fully entitled to take a different view and declared that, to the contrary, the award was obtained through a defective process. Once again, the Swiss position would be hypothetical and irrelevant. Surely the word pluralism is a posit. Consider the case of an arbitration taking place in country A. An award is rendered there. Assume the courts of that country reserve the power to overrule an arbitral tribunal if they find a simple error of law and that there is thus a possibility of ordinary appeal. Most countries' judicial systems, whether by the operation of multilateral conventions or by unilaterally applied principles of comity, are prepared to enforce a foreign arbitral award only if satisfied that the award is binding. The law of country A will naturally have rules to determine whether an award rendered in A is binding. That law may hold that an award not be binding until it has resisted appeal or unless no appeal has been lodged within a certain period. But nothing prevents country B from legislating and acting upon a rule to the effect that an award by an arbitral tribunal constituted according to contractual agreement, wherever rendered, is binding for the purposes of enforcement in B at the moment it is pronounced. As the numbers of transborder arbitrations increased exponentially over the past half century, it became unavoidable that a number of national legal orders could have an impact, and in different ways. To take stock of this development, however, and to perceive the conceptual shift 
it commands took time. First, although there were many international arbitrations throughout the 19th century and well into the 20th, they were conducted pursuant to treaties. Their legal order was therefore perforce that of public international law. The underlying disputes were occasionally commercial in origin, but the claims were made by states on behalf of their nationals against other states. There was, at least conceptually, only one overarching international legal order. Secondly, the environment of international private commercial relations bore little relation to today's world. The number of sovereign states formally qualified to establish national legal orders was only a fraction of what it is today. International commerce was of far less macroeconomic magnitude. It tended to involve simple, short-term transactions. And of course, much overseas trade was of an intra-imperial nature, with the effect that disputes were subject to the metropolitan legal order, be it English or Dutch, Portuguese or Soviet. Arbitrations that might have appeared international due to the participation of exotic arbitrants were in fact not very international at all. The governing law, the arbitrators, both sets of legal representatives, the venue of the hearings, and the place of the issuance of the award, all were internal features of a functionally monolithic apparatus. The overseas domicile of one or both parties was a trifling factor when viewed in context. In the middle of the 20th century, life on this planet changed in three ways, having fundamental importance for our story. The first development was the phenomenal expansion of international economic exchanges. Secondly, the aftermath of World War II was a period of imperial dismantlement. With dizzying speed, a world in which a majority of people were not citizens of their own countries, but of colonies, was turned right side up. It is an astonishing fact that a majority of states established by 1970 had not even existed 25 years before. The single year, 1960, saw the accession to independence of the greatest number of states ever. Each was now in a position to create its own legal order. Each now had borders that defined what was international in international trade. The third change was noticed only by the handful of people concerned with the principles and mechanisms of the arbitral process proper, which they hoped to adapt to this complex new world. The New York Convention of 1958 radically re-engineered its predecessor, the 1927 Geneva Convention. Henceforth, awards were entitled to enforcement in another country under the control of its judges, thus abandoning the requirement of a prior order of enforcement by the courts of the country of origin. The pluralistic thesis is perhaps most precisely described as the perception that a multiplicity of legal orders have the potential to be enlisted to ensure the efficacy of arbitration. It may be untidy and unpredictable, but the vision of an unknown set of potentially relevant legal orders does correspond to the reality of international life. The territorialists may well say that their steady focus on the law of the place of arbitration enhances predictability but that can be so only to the extent that one is concerned with inconsistency between the law of the place of arbitration 
on the one hand, and the law of one particular price of enforcement on the other. Nothing in the territorialist doctrine can stop two enforcement fori, each considering whether to recognize an award from coming to different conclusions. For example, as to the arbitrator's respect for due process as a precondition of enforcement. More generally, it is simply undeniable that Article 5.2 of the New York Convention leaves it to any of a multitude to enforcement fori to evaluate the conformity of an award with their particular concepts of arbitrability or public policy. It is impossible to deny the plurality of legal orders that may give effect or not to arbitration agreements and awards. It is simply a fact. The potential legal orders that may be called upon to make arbitration effective in any given case will not have been finally identified until the arbitrants have finally laid down their arms. The legal order of the place of arbitration may play no role whatever in the practical outcome. To the contrary, the legal order of some country not even contemplated at the time of signing the arbitration agreement may be decisive. Above all, in most situations, as in Maître Dupont's case, even the model of plurality does not in fact need to operate at all. Arbitration makes its entry and exit without any manifestation of any national legal order other than the diffuse expectations of the parties as to what the law might do if called upon to do something. I shall return to this fluid reality in a few moments, but first, some Parisian poetry. A visionary idea has germinated for half a century in the minds of a succession of French scholars. Its resonance in France and elsewhere has extended to judicial pronouncements, although not in legislation. The latest avatar of this intellectual project is a succinct monograph published by Emmanuel Gaillard last year, Aspect philosophique du droit de l'arbitrage international, in which the author answers the fundamental preoccupation with respect to arbitrators' power to judge by reference to something he describes with ostensible simplicity as not being part of any national legal order, be it that of the place of arbitration or of the place of execution of an award. He calls it l'ordre juridique arbitral. It is easy to see why this third thesis rejects the territorialist approach, but why is it not content with a pluralistic thesis? Gaillard does not challenge the correctness of the pluralistic thesis, but rather its consequences. The danger that we may founder on something he refers to as, it's quite new, the reef of lex executionisme. He explains that this shipwreck would be the result of having to consider that the legal foundation of any award must be the totality of all legal systems which might be called upon to enforce it. This would, he argues, give primacy to the least favorable norm, in de favorem arbitrandum. Hence the need for this third conception of the legal foundation of arbitral efficacy. If, in fact, the pluralistic model worked in this fashion, there might be a starting point for Professor Gaillard's logic. Fortunately, it does not. 
Arbitrators do not examine the validity of the arbitration clause or of their appointment under the laws of every country that might conceivably be approached as an enforcement forum, nor do they have a duty to do so. Indeed, that task would be impossible unless they could read the parties' minds and predict future tracing of assets. Moreover, if Gaillard's vision were correct, any tribunal, including a woman or an atheist, should declare itself lacking authority because somewhere a possible execution forum might require that arbitrators be male or that they profess a certain faith. Gaillard's reference to the rules of the ICC and the LCIA, which instruct arbitrators to make every effort to make sure that awards are legally enforceable, seems misplaced. It appears odd indeed to think that arbitrators' duty to strive for the highest degree of enforceability of awards means that they must reject claims. Because somewhere in a place where enforcement may conceivably be sought, there is a possibly applicable rule which might be interpreted to the effect that the award <clears throat> would not be recognized. It is hard to resist the impression that the filaments of the order being proposed in Paris float in the ether like gossamer. Now I'll have to use my fingers for inverted commas. The putative fundaments of this legal order correspond to a strong perception on the part of arbitrators that they do not render justice in the name of any state, yet have a jurisdictional role in the service of the international community. The elements of this order are distilled by arbitrators who are penetrated by the idea of applying substantive transnational rules rather than fixing on a single national law determined by rules of conflict of laws. They reflect a vast movement acknowledging the merits of recourse to arbitration in international trade. The order is further reflected in a current of transnational law yielding a positivist, positivist perspective due to the broad agreement of states with respect to the criteria by which arbitration is recognized as valid and worthy of their sanction. A bonus, not my word, a bonus is given to laws which are part of the dynamic of the general evolution as opposed to those who remain outside this movement. We thus move from the mono-localization of arbitration to its multi-localization and finally reach a triumphant transnational representation of arbitration derived from tendencies susceptible to flow from the normative activity of the community of states. When Gaillard focuses on the more delicate recognition of his ordre juridique arbitral, he says this, it emanates, the recognition, emanates from states such that the international legal order flows from the will of states, which does not prevent it from being seen as an autonomous legal order, and thus puts his entire construct it seems to me, fatally in harm's way. For the international legal order of states has been painstakingly and rather incompletely constructed on the basis of unanimity. States have never accepted that the norms of the international community could be derived from progressive tendencies as embraced by other states. They insist on their own individual adhesion.
They're even less likely to embrace such amorphous norms as limitations on their laws in their national space when dealing with private law features like arbitration. Gaia contends that this order is not, as he puts it, opposed to national law, but on the contrary is founded on the normative activity of states. The objective of the exercise is to distinguish the rules that have been widely acknowledged from those which proceed from un particularisme exacerbé ou désoué, which I might translate as an excessive or outdated exceptionalism. This naturally puts a premium on the discernment of authoritative jurists who might inspect an array of laws assembled before them like so many cadets, giving a thumbs up when they somehow perceive that one of them is widely acknowledged or a thumbs down when they somehow determine that another is just a bit too jejune or retrograde. Such pronouncements, I think, are unlikely to go down well with judges who would be violating their oath of office if they showed fealty to a transnational order rather than that to the state that has appointed them. Above all, even if this third thesis were correct, it is difficult to see how it achieves anything not already available under the pluralistic thesis. If national judicial authorities embrace awards that apply transnational norms or trade practices, there is no warrant for leaping to the conclusion that they are thereby acknowledging another legal order any more than their acceptance of, let's say, customs of the diamond trade means that they recognize a legal order emanating from Antwerp. What courts say is quite simply an expression of the legal order of which they are a part. It can be nothing else. Perhaps one day, national judges will embark on learned assessments of whether certain phenomena are to be given legal effect because such is the consensus of the normative activity of progressive states or perhaps of vanguard states which are still in the minority but should be given greater weight than the retrograde minority, and at any rate, irrespective of what the judge's own positive law would say. But that will, may I suggest, have to await a new race of judges with a radically new perception of their duties. In a judgment handed down this past summer, the English Court of Appeals was, it seems, too quick to attribute exotic characteristics to French law. I'm now talking about French law, not theory. When it examined the case of Dalla versus Pakistan. Dalla is a Saudi trading group which had won an ICC award uh, in Paris against the government of Pakistan. The relevant contract had been entered into between Dalla and a Pakistani trust created by presidential ordinance but dissolved a few months after signature. Dalla argued that the contract was attributable to the government of Pakistan. This gave rise to a debate which the government argued should be decided under Pakistani law, while Dalla urged the application of Saudi law. The arbitral tribunal rejected both arguments. One might have expected the arbitrators to apply French law, faute de mieux, in consequence of the parties' agreement to arbitrate in France. Instead, they held that the issue of the government's status in the arbitration should be decided by, listen please, those transnational general principles and usages which reflect the fundamental requirements of justice in international trade and the concept of good faith in business. I would be amiss if I failed to mention that the tribunal was chaired by none other than Lord Mustel. Perhaps he had escargot for lunch and disguised himself in a romantic beret. But now at the enforcement stage, 
the question for the English courts was whether the award was enforceable in England against Pakistan or not. The judges noted that the words of the Arbitration Act, echoing those of the New York Convention, required that the validity of arbitration agreements be tested against the law of the country where the award was made. And so, paradoxically, the English courts conducted an in-depth investigation into French law to determine Pakistan's status under the arbitration agreement, whereas the tribunal seated in France had done no such thing. All this is generally interesting, but it is when, when one gets to the judgment of Lord Justice Ricks in the Court of Appeal that the present discussion becomes alive. In dictum, Ricks considered whether Dallas' case might have been assisted by reflecting on the discretion that exists under, New York, under the New York Convention, Convention to enforce awards notwithstanding their annulment in the country of origin, but noted that this possibility appeared to depend on a French theory not recognized in England to the effect that arbitrators derive their authority from a transnational legal order. Perhaps someone had given him Gaillard's book. Well, there may be such a theory circulating in France, but it simply cannot be French law. The French courts may say they have adopted, let us say, the, duty, the, the doctrine of the duty to mitigate damages because it is necessary for everyone to obey the man in the moon. But that does not make the man in the moon a universal lawgiver. It means only that the French courts recognize a duty to mitigate damages. That is all an organ of the French legal order can do, i.e. establish a rule for itself. A proclamation to the effect that this is done to give effect to a supranational order is simply ultra vires. French law cannot will into existence something which is larger than itself. It would hardly be surprising to find that the courts of some other countries acknowledge the same rule, be it the duty to mitigate or a particularly favorable way of treating arbitration. That does not prove the authority of the man in the moon. Even if voices are heard in each of these progressive countries to say that he deserves the credit for the good rules. It means only that each of a number of legal orders has, for whatever reasons, similar, different, contradictory, adopted the rule in question. The textbooks of comparative law have for many generations been filled with examples. There is nothing new here at all. Now, the development of international arbitration owes a disproportionately large debt to French law and to the conceptual advances of French judges and scholars. Yet the proposition that an effective legal order can be built upon diaphanous abstractions like progressivist perspectives or transnational dynamics are more likely, it seems to me, to impede than to facilitate respect for the arbitral process. Back to the pluralistic model. However accurate as far as it goes, I suggest, it is too <clears throat> restrictive and therefore unsatisfactory. It leaves out too much of the picture. We need a fourth way of perceiving the effective role of arbitration. This fourth conception does not depend directly on either law or judges as the foundation of arbitration or more precisely, as a sufficient foundation for some arbitrations. It therefore does not seek to attach itself to some 
dreamy and self-contradictory premise of an autonomous order recognized by the very state orders from which it purports to be free. When this fourth model operates, arbitrants would no doubt on occasion be pleased to qualify for assistance from the machinery of the state. On occasion, that same machinery may intervene to exclude the possibility of arbitration. But the point is that this vision of arbitration routinely functions without judicial assistance. A seminal exposition of this vision of legal orders was published in 1918 by Santi Romano under the title L'Ordinamento Juridico, The Legal Order. It remained an Italian secret for half a century until Spanish, French, and German translations appeared, never an English version. A worthy adversary of Kelsen, who ended up at Berkeley for many years, writing numerous vol volumes in English, Romano never left Italy. It is a considerable loss for the Anglophone world. Law must ultimately be founded in social reality, Santi Romano reasoned. Social reality may create a legal order that ignores the formalistic insistence on an elusive ultimate norm, be it Kelsen's Grundnorm or, to anticipate, Hart's secondary rules of recognition. For Romano, every organized social group is a kind of legal order. It may be superior or inferior to a nation state, or even parallel, the international community, an institutionalized church, subnational collectivities, professional and trade organizations, associations of myriad types, even families, including criminal familias. Social groups capable of generating a legal order are not, in Romano's view, limited to those without which the individual cannot survive. They include voluntary communities from which the individual may exit. It follows that legal orders may survive within a greater legal order, which tolerates and indeed nourishes them, but does not care to impose itself in the domain for which the subgroup in question prescribes its rules. It's a commonplace observation that empires at their apogee, confident in their power and immor immortality from Rome to Britain, tended to permit a profusion of local legal arrangements. When the structures of the state do not succeed, we observe, as a matter of fact, that other arrangements fill the void. Indeed, such non-state mechanisms may surpass or ignore less vital institutions proposed by the state. I suggest that Romano's reality is in the ascendancy. It may fill the vacuum when public institutions fail. It may be the hallmark of a fluid legal universe with significant elements of self-governance as the arbitrant themselves, the arbitrants themselves, replacing the legislative and the executive arms of the state, create norms and ensure their sanctions. This immensely important phenomenon and its limits calls on, us, calls on us to make important conceptual moves. Let's do so now for a few moments. The proponents of pluralistic overlapping legal orders create an unnecessary difficulty for themselves when they concede 
that non-state orders do not view themselves as engaged in governance. To take one prominent example, Boaventura de Souza Santos, an eloquent proponent of legal pluralism and what he calls the great variety of legal orders circulating in society, seems to be unaware how far things have gone when he quite inaccurately accepts that, the sta that state law is distinctive in being, as he writes, the only self-reflexive legal form, that is, the only legal form that thinks of itself as law. Conversely, skeptics make their case easier by asserting, without any basis for doing so, that non-state arrangements cannot qualify as legal orders because they do not have the ambition of governing. They are not, in the phrase of Simon Roberts of the LSE, projects of government. True enough, one must share the unease felt by those who fear that an exuberant rush to see legal orders everywhere, even in the most ephemeral arrangements covering only the tiniest slices of life in society, will expand the concept into meaninglessness. There is force in Roberts' argument, as encapsulated in the final sentence of his 2004 Chorley lecture. I quote, uncoupled from governing, decentered law, like decentered regulation, may well be found everywhere. But in representing it like that, we risk losing all sense of what it is. This notion of law uncoupled from governing merits greater scrutiny. The truth is, that the formal apparatus of positive law, proclaimed by a great number of institutionally defective states, institutionally defective states, are de facto uncoupled from governing, while a number of non-state orderings are fully engaged in governing significant spheres of activity. True, vast meanings should not be ascribed to trivialities like the law of cues, or the law of family reunions, or perhaps the law of faculty meetings, whatever their interest to sociologists. But that does not exclude the possibility that non-state arrangements may lay serious claims to qualify as legal orders. They are impersonal. They intend to govern important aspects of social life and to do so exclusively. And their potential to endure seems superior to that of a, numbered, of a number of troubled states. Important reasons underlie the emergence of these systems. One is the fact that they pertain to a type of borderless activity which cannot coherently or effectively be regula regulated by state authorities. A quite different raison d'etre is the tragic failure of public justice in so many countries. Irresistible pressure rises for reality, arises for alternatives. Real-life examples, to which I now turn, of legal orderings involving arbitration are seldom primitive. To the contrary, their textual underpinnings, their constitutions, are frequently elaborate. To a significant de degree, this is so precisely because they were conceived to avoid the need for controversial interpretation by state organs, indeed to function without any intervention by state authorities. I will not dwell on the familiar examples of well-established arbitral institutions, except to say that the fact that they have been with us for a long time should not be allowed to obscure the fact that they are particularly dynamic. The contexts in which they operate evolve quickly, and so therefore, and so therefore do their responses to the, insure, to the ensuing challenges. 
It is no exaggeration to say that they are no longer what they were, even a few decades ago. This is so specifically with respect to their, relation, their relative position as compared to national orders. In the 1950s, the International Chamber of Commerce's arbitration system was a diffident, puny institution in comparison to the potent state orders then holding sway. Today, ICC arbitrations and other similar types of arbitration are the standard way in which international commercial disputes are resolved, and the overwhelming number of disputes are so resolved without any need to refer to state authorities of any kind. For their part, the states we say today, the, the states we see today are a motley crew. Anyone who wishes to insist that Somalia, simply because its flag flies at the UN, is more of a legal order, an effective legal order, than say the institution of unsettled arbitration as supported by the New York Convention is perhaps a prisoner of empty definitions. But allow me to close by using two far newer arrangements as illustrations. There is a global internet to which the essential core element, as most of you know, is the so-called root zone of the domain name system, the DNS. As a purely operational matter, this route is controlled by the Commerce Department of the United States government. For the ministry of a single state to regulate such an important global resource would be highly controversial, likely to create political pressure to generate competing systems. That would be a retrograde development, a kind of Tower of Babel in cyberspace. The U.S. government has therefore entered into contracts with a not-for-profit corporation, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, or ICANN, to provide vastly important regulatory services, allocating and assigning domain names and IP, Internet Protocol addresses, coordinating the DNS, and organizing the process of, I'm quoting, policy development related to these technical functions. Controversies have arisen with respect to numerous policy issues against the background of the possibility that the U.S. government could reclaim the power and functions it contracted to ICANN. The latter operates under articles of incorporation and bylaws in conformity with its state of incorporation, California. Critics of ICANN's governance have complained that this outsourcing of regulation, regulation impairs accountability in that ICANN's decision escape the ordinary requirements of administrative law, such as transparency, due process, and judicial review. As one persistent critic has put it, the DNS should not be regulated through contracts and winks. But on the other hand, that these functions should be subject to U.S. administrative law would most certainly be perceived as national assertion of dominance over an international resource. And so ICANN continues as a work in progress to seek to satisfy its global constituencies through refinements in three principal features. First, its work is done in conditions of remarkable transparency with meetings, contracts, and protocols routinely made accessible to the public for timely comment. Secondly, its bylaws, California Nonprofit Corporation, require a cosmopolitan board including members from all continents as well as a governmental advisory committee open to all national governments, 
which holds frequent meetings around the world that resembles nothing so much as typical conclaves of international organizations. Thirdly, an independent review board operating by an international arbitration provider may be asked by any complainant to declare whether actions of the ICANN board are consistent with its articles and bylaws in which one finds, this must be a, force, a first for a California nonprofit corporation, the obligation on the board to act, I quote, in conformity with international law. We can surely see that this is a peculiar legal construct. It defies categorization. If this is not law in action, in the full glory of conceptual untidiness, what is? Another illustration comes from the world of sports, which in modern time has become a big international industry. This industry has generated an interesting arbitral mechanism which operates in a context which gives its great efficiency. It's been in existence for little more than two decades. It's the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, located in Lausanne. It is easy to see why it's effective in disciplinary cases. An athlete who is suspended for a doping offense will simply not be given the credentials to compete. But CAS also achieves finality and eff efficacy with respect to contractual disputes. An example, in 2002, a Brazilian football player signed a contract to play for a Mexican club called Tigres. He was paid a transfer fee, modest, $1 million, and was there thereafter entitled to receive a monthly salary until the end of the fourth season. After one year, he got homesick and went back to Brazil. The International Football Federation, FIFA, promptly suspended him, but within a few months, a Brazilian labor court ruled that he was entitled to pursue his career. He accordingly signed with a Brazilian team known as Atletico Mineiro. Tigres, of course, felt hard done by. They had given a million dollars not to have a player for one year, but for four. How were they to be made whole? They had an employment contract with a player. They might get a judgment from a Mexican court, but then what? Even without any complicating factor, one might expect that a Mexican judgment would not readily be enforceable in Brazil, particularly in a city which might have sympathy for the local hero. What reason would there be to suppose, to suppose that he had saved money in a single, convenient, transparent account to accommodate the Mexican judgment creditor? And of course, there is the complicating factor. The Brazilian court had declared that he was entitled to pursue his career with a local team. Grim prospects for Tigas. But that was before consideration of the modern context of the globalized football industry and the role of CAS as a backstop of that context. The fact is that Tigre, Tigres had no difficulty enforcing their claim. First, proceedings were held in FIFA, and a FIFA panel said that um, uh, Tigres were entitled to, to restitution of the full $1 million. An appeal was lodged, as is possible under the FIFA statute, statutes to CAS, where full arguments were heard, and CAS decided, applying Swiss law and the FIFA regulations, that the proper damages were not $1 million, but $750,000, a deduction on account of the one year played. The FIFA rules explicitly hold teams jointly and severally liable for breaches of contracts which are registered with FIFA. 
Accordingly, if the player failed to pay the $750,000 within 30 days of the award, Atletico Mineiro would be, would be required to make the payment. If it didn't make the payment under FIFA regulations, the Brazilian National Federation would be required to relegate Atletico Mineiro to the second division, where it hadn't been for a century. Unlikely to happen. If you imagine that this was a team, unlike Atletico Mineiro, uh, in financial difficulty and would just have to take its lumps and go into the second division, well, by not seeing to it that this judgment was properly enforced by the National Federation, by the, uh, by the team that had employed the player, the National Federation is suspended from international com competition. Brazil doesn't play in the World Cup. Inconceivable an effective arbitral system. The fluid legal order in which arbitration operates undoubtedly works in practice, but as the old joke asks, will it work in theory? The sting in this witticism is not that, the theory, that, is not that theory is inevitably useless, but that when a phenomenon may be observed in practice, it is useless to propose a theory that cannot accommodate reality. Looking at the world today, we can happily abandon, indeed we must abandon, the formalistic dead end of the exclusively statist model. Thank you for your attention. one or two minutes of uh, questioning, but before I get to that point, I have to say um, maybe one thing, abusing the, the Chairman's uh, privilege. Um, this rich and stimulating lecture by our centennial professor, uh, Jan Paulsen, um, evokes in this particular common lawyer's uh, mind who can perhaps assume the imaginary persona, not of Maitre Dupont, but Professor Dupont, and certain thoughts about the development of the common law. And it seems to me, looking at the people who write about the common law, they can be fairly crudely broken down into three categories. Um, those who write about the, the living, current, actual law, the lex lata, those who write about what the law should be, the lex ferenda, and those who pretend to write about the lex lata, but who write about the lex ferenda. Now, in certain key areas of commercial law, one is beginning to see case law drying up as litigants go down the road towards the privatized world of arbitral justice. And the thought occurs to me, how can I carry on at least pretending to write about the Lex Lata if there is nothing left to fashion the material of development of the law. At some point, the author's opinion will intrude and it will not be the opinion of the Court of Appeal or the rulings of the Court of Appeal or of the House of Lords, but the feelings, the sentiments of the author. And how is the author to find out what's happening in the quiet, private, um, cameral world, you might say, of um, international arbitration? where you're looking at the settlement of disputes by arbitrators who have no duty to instruct those who are looking to follow and understand the law, who maybe don't make a particularly transparent contribution to the development of the law, whose 
function is the existential one of dealing with disputes as they arise and who knows what kind of uh, Georges Seurat pointillist picture will emerge as a result of the concentration of all of these arbitral awards. It's a rather teasing thought, to say the very least. So that is the, um, the view of uh, this Professor Dupont. We are on a fairly tight timetable, but uh, Professor Paulson has said that he would be prepared to take a few questions. If you have questions, could you please firmly and clearly identify yourselves and any institution to which you may be affiliated or group or arbitral body? <laughs> Professor Paulson has also said, if you're shy, he'll be prepared to take questions at the reception afterwards. I do see somebody in the corner. I'm not going to be the first one, uh, but uh, it's better to have one not very good question than no questions <laughs> at all. My name is Yaroslav Krivoy, and I will be joining Freshfields in a few days. So. Uh, We'll be working here in London. And my question also well, sort of follows up on your observations about the, the transparency and the nature, the absence of any checks and balances in these new systems which exist on their own and which are uh, very often fueled by, um, by high legal fees and by inventiveness of lawyers and by those who can afford those lawyers as opposed to let's say, some indigenous communities uh, in Latin America or some uh, civil, civil uh, rights groups which cannot afford expensive lawyers to go, let's say, to exit or uh, to other uh, inter international arbitration institutions. Thank you very much. Well, I was looking for a reference in my note uh, to a comment which I would have made if I'd had time where I believe, ultimately, if you read Hart very closely, you find that he moves quite a long distance in the end away from Kelsen, and I think toward Romano, if you'd ever heard of Romano or been able to read him, in saying that ultimately nothing succeeds like success, or actually what he meant was only success succeeds, which means that the legal order in question will work only if it is accepted. So my answer to the checks and balances, uh, if no system is likely to endure very long in the absence of the recognition that it does have checks and balances uh, and that the powerful, influential party will win. I think, that's, uh, I, I, I think that's the safeguard we have and that is true for national legal systems uh, as anything else. In fact, um, Michael, I would suggest if you're, if you're on this horse, take it the whole way. Uh, why stop with arbitration? Professor Owen Fiss of Yale Law School in the Yale Law Journal 1986 wrote an article with a deliciously short title, Against Settlements. And he was campaigning against US courts, militating in favor of settlements and ordering parties to go away and think about whether they couldn't settle the case a dereliction of judicial duty. Well, of course, litigants subsidize the development of the law. It's their function. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Anthea. 
Um, I was wondering to what extent your theory about arbitration differentiates between international commercial arbitration and other areas of arbitration like investment arbitration. Do you see different theories emerging or do you see a common theory throughout? And I was also wondering with your sort of idea of this as a form of governance, whether you connect it all with the global administrative law project and they're sort of starting to move towards looking at arbitration and looking at some of the critiques of exactly the sort of things that you are also focused on but from a different direction. Well, depending on the social environment, the social group which has created the particular arrangement, ordering, whatever you want to call it, uh, there are other interested parties knocking at the door and wondering what's going on because they are affected by it. Uh, and that, uh, of course, um, is different depending on the particular, uh, the particular context you, you are in. Uh, it is not true, however, simply to say that arbitrations that arise out of international treaties uh, are of one genus and international commercial arbitration are of another genus just by reference to its genesis in an arbitration clause in a contract. Because the truth is that something on the order of one-third of ICC arbitrations involve states or state parties, with the important difference that they're often claimants. Nevertheless, uh, it is of interest to the public to see how the state behaves or how a public corporation behaves, even as a claimant. Um, so it, it's, um, that is one principal difference. And if you get into a pure one-off commercial arrangement, um, the likelihood of um, third-party interest is obviously, is obviously far less. Uh, and the interest in establishing um, legal precedence is less because it's a one-off contract which one hopes no sensible human being would ever draft again. Uh, whereas if you were talking about the interpretation of a treaty, which might fall to be um, the um, stuff of a hundred other arbitrations, uh, it looks very different. So the contexts do change. Yes, hi, good evening. Um, not to be uh, unsympathetic to the idea of a uh, transnational or, plur or pluralistic approach, which I think it's, it's very feasible. Uh, my question is, wouldn't uh, the need for, in the long run, for some type of uh, standardization or solidification of these pluralistic norms lead uh, or work against the whole idea of arbitration in the sense that the parties are entering to an agreement where they're where their own will is established in the sense of their choosing the rules that they want to apply and the laws that they want to apply. It's kind of the same way why there has been some kind of hesitance in the uh, drafting of procedural norms because they feel that it just breaks away from the, the will of the parties to set the process as they see fit. Is there a Will you see a problem in the long run of this type of uh, standardization in these general principles? Well, I feel quite strongly uh, that as scholars, or even as citizens trying to understand the world in which we live, our starting point should be agnostic. So when you started saying I'm sympathetic, to that's not the question of what we're sympathetic toward. We should ask ourselves whether our vision corresponds to reality and whether we are making sense of what we are seeing. So if parties wish to exercise their freedom in a particular sense, uh, it seems to me the onus is on those who wish to deprive them of the freedom to do so. What is free consent? I mean, that, that's, uh, there, there's a lot to be said about that. But ultimately, if 
a particular community wants the degree of uh, controls that you are advocating. That might happen. I'm neutral. I just want to describe accurately what is going on. Uh, that might be wonderful, or to the contrary, they might find that by installing that kind of a system infelicitously, they end up with whatever it is that they didn't like about what they had before. So they're, they're trade-offs, and once again, what works is, is what people actually want, and we should think twice before we deny them what they want. I've got two people in the front row, and I think that's all we have time for. Uh, Hugh Collins from the LSE Law Department. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want to sort of support my colleague Simon Roberts a bit and just wonder whether all these legal orders that are floating around are satisfactory, in particular in connection with arbitration and thinking about it in terms of being another kind of legal order. Um, Uh, my problem with it is, I suppose, sort of brought up in a controversy that's been raging in England this week about uh, a football match uh, between France and Ireland, where uh, it seems that a handball scored the winning goal and the referee didn't see it, so therefore that's the result. And it, it seems to me that. That, that that's what arbitration's like. You choose your referee, you get a result, whether or not he's eaten escargot for lunch or whatever, and, and you're, that's it. And, um, and then, I mean, you can insulate that decision against any further recourse. Um, but that doesn't seem to me to be the same sense of order, legal order, as what would normally expected something that claims authority. It, it's a decision-making process for sure. The referee's word is final. But but no one really thinks that this is kind of a, a, a really authoritative order that deserves respect in some way. Uh, so I'm drawing that analogy because I just, I think arbitration is, is very interested in getting results. It works. But, but this idea of considering it as a, a legal order, I still feel less than comfortable with, despite your eloquent <laughs> advocacy. Well, the, the Court of Arbitration for Sport has a jurisdictional rule, which one might call its legal philosophy, which, since you took that example, specifically uh, decrees. Well, this, this actually became an understanding of the case law of CAS, that controversies on the pitch cannot be arbitrated. So CAS itself seemed to be on your wavelength to say that, well, just accept having a referee and accepting his decision uh, has to do with those tough things in life that are character building, but it's not part of a legal order, and you cannot arbitrate those disputes, disputes arbitrate in the sense of, of the legal order of, of CAS. That being said, I think everything that, that Simon Roberts uh, said in the Chorley lecture uh, I, I think are extremely valid. The one uh, crutch he used was to say that uh, these informal orderings don't have the project of governing. And in that, I think he hasn't looked at some of these. Lastly, and very quickly, 
very quickly indeed, Martin Lachlan, LSE. Uh, I was intrigued, Jan, by what you said about the, 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 the creation of nation states in the latter half of the 20th century. Up until that, we had a century of empires, more than a century of empires, and then it would appear we have the era of the nation state. Now, maybe the world can't live in the era of nation states, and what you're <coughs> referring to is not actually the emergence of a plural—can't plural, even say plurality of juridical orders. It's seeing the emergence of a new imperial form. This is Hart Negri Empire that is governing the world. Lex Sportiva is taking over. Lex Sportiva and its equivalents is the new imperial structure that is not subject to the conditions of accountability that we are used to through nation-state territorial structures. It's no longer a, a, a two-dimensional world, a quilt of divisions around the planet, but a three-dimensional one. And the aspect of depth is just what you're referring to. In some areas, a subgroup of a larger group actually has greater power than the larger one. It's, 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 it's complex. In the area of sports, very simple example, uh, an international competition takes place in Spain and um, uh, as, as it happens, a Spanish bicycle racer is found guilty of doping uh, and is taken to CAS to have his international suspension decided. He points out that according to a royal decree in Spain, you are not allowed to arbitrate doping offenses. Interesting. Why? There, it's, it's wonderful to, to have legislative history. The legislative history is that the Kingdom of Spain doesn't trust sports organizations to decide doping is, disputes because they think that very star, star performers will be treated too leniently. That actually wouldn't be a concern at the international level. That's not the point. Point is this. The, the athlete says, this dispute cannot be arbitrated in CAS. You are violating the Spanish law. You ran a race in Spain. I'm a Spanish citizen. What are you doing attracting me into arbitration in, in, in Lausanne? I don't have a clean answer to that. The answer is power. And why did I say that? If Spain doesn't want Union Cycliste Internationale to organize any more World Cup, World Cup races in Spain, Spain can continue to take this line and say that the prohibition about arbitration and doping includes international um, arbitration. Well, the law doesn't make any distinction, but the Spanish government has sort of let it known that that's how they will understand it. This is, this is politics. Right. Three very quick final points. First, Professor Paulson is going to be making, we hope, a great contribution to the transnational law project, which is being spearheaded by Anthea Roberts and by Jan Kleinheisterkamp. If you want to know more about it, uh, please visit the uh, department website of the LSE. And there you will find, amongst other things, a wonderful quartile diagram showing the difference between substantive and procedural and public and private, which could almost be rendered in modern heraldic terms with the aid of the <laughs> College of Heralds round the corner. But it's a very informative document, and it gives you some idea of what we propose to do with arbitration over the next few years. Uh, the second point relates to directions for the reception. The reception will be held in the atrium, which is a ground floor room on the corner of Houghton Street and Clare Market. Turn right at the exit, first right, and it's then at the bottom of Houghton Street on the left-hand corner. 
past the sea of the elephant, you've probably gone too far. If you go past the penguin, you've certainly gone too far. And if you meet Captain Scott and his doomed expedition, then there is no going back. So please be very careful. And lastly, in the customary way, I would like you formally to give your thanks to what was a very stimulating lecture indeed.